and welcome this morning. Somebody made sure I had a clock today so that they used their other phone to record. So I know what time it is. But while you have your phones out, by the way, if you have never texted us, we have a new uh, way of keeping up with folks here. So if you're a guest this morning, you can text this number, 540-274-2341, and just type guest in the line. If you're one of our regulars, you can text that number if you haven't and type home in. And this channels you to a different uh, method of communication from us, but we do want to welcome you and thank you for coming today. We're in a series of messages this summer, some summertime psalms, and we're going to look again today at another psalm. This is Psalm 110. So if you'd like to turn there in your Bible, I did not put this psalm on the screen for you because... I want you to turn there either on a device or on something so that you don't read it on the screen because you can't half see it anyway. Only about two more weeks and we'll get our big projector back. So thank you for being patient with us. Psalm 110. This is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Beyond any other passage of Scripture, the most quoted. And there's a reason it is quoted the most. So follow me as I read it, and then we'll be making some comments in just a few moments. This is a psalm of David, and it reads this way. The Lord says to my Lord. Now, notice carefully the capital O-L-O-R-D, all in caps. You see that? The capital L-O-R-D says to my capital L, little case O-R-D. Now, do you know what's going on here? Well, the first one with all caps is the Hebrew word Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. The second is called L-O-R-D. That is the the literal word Adonai. So the Yahweh says to the Adonai, okay? This is what he says. Sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Seven short verses which gather together about nine theological doctrines. One man said this is the most pregnant psalm in the Old Testament. In other words, it's filled with so much information that it's hard to unpack. But we want to try that this morning. But before I do... I want to show you how Jesus referred to this psalm, if it will work. Yes, it did. Can you all see that? 
I'm in Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 44. This is one of the places this psalm is quoted. But notice what happened. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Now, obviously, the Pharisees weren't big fans of Jesus. They had turned against him. So now he asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. And they got this from the genealogy. He said to them, notice this. How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? Now, catch this. Who is the Messiah? And they say, well, he's the son of David. And Jesus says, well, if he's just the son of David, why does David call him God? Because clearly in Psalm 110, God is saying to God, sit at my right hand. Now, this just absolutely shattered their thinking. How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him God? Can I just say it that way? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, watch the screen closely. In in Greek, the word L-O-R-D and L-O-R-D are the same. But in Hebrew, there is a distinction between Yahweh and Adonai. In Greek, there's no way to make a distinction. You can only use one word. That's why in your English translation and the Greek translation, it's translated the same. And really, this makes it more powerful because God says to God. I mean, this is equal here. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And did it not go to the rest? Apparently it didn't, did it? So here it is. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? If he's the son of David and David calls him God, then how can he just be the son of David? Now, the obvious answer is he has to be both. He has to be the son of David and he also has to be God. Do you see what Jesus did? By the way, you never wanted to argue with Jesus. Never. He could take logic and the four squares of opposition and turn them into a rectangle. You know why? Because he's God. And he knows the end from the beginning and the answers and the possible and the impossible. He knows what might have happened if this would have happened and so forth. Just by the, by the way, have you ever noticed that about him? He's, he told the Pharisees one time, if Sodom and Gomorrah had heard what you heard preached to you, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. If they had been given the light that you were given, they would have repented and believed. That is the, the actual from the possible. He knew what actually would have happened if it was possible. But... Obviously, they didn't. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And by the way, from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. He absolutely silenced the crowd. Now, by the way, this goes to show you that winning an intellectual argument, laying out evidence and facts, never converts the heart. 
Are you listening to me? You can have the preponderance of the evidence and say, how in the world can you not see that this is what's happening? You can lay out all the evidence you want. If the heart is not opened, it will not be accepted. You've heard the old saying, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. The will and knowledge have to be able to go together, and this is where the divine work of God has to come into play. Now, in thinking about this psalm that our Lord quoted, Psalm 110, which he quoted, the first verse, is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's entirely messianic. Unlike some other psalms, which could, could be applied to an earthly king during the time of their reign in Israel, this one could not. There was nowhere to apply it. So it's entirely messianic, and this means that no part of the psalm applies to earthly men. It is reserved for Jesus alone. And if you want one psalm to kind of put in your memory bank to try to remember and keep in focus, this is a really, really good one. And that's why I'm sharing some of these highlights. So I want to give you three prophetic descriptions of Jesus and then three lessons at the end of this in hopes that it will move us and help us to love him and serve him more. But the first thing that I want you to see in verses 1 through 3 is David presents Jesus as the divine ruling king. The divine ruling king. Notice his person in verse 1. He is both God and man. The Lord says to my Lord. Now, I've shared this with you before. You could go out from verse 1 and write down Isaiah 6. You could write down Jeremiah 22. Uh, and there's Ezekiel chapter 1. When, whenever an Old Testament prophet, there were different ways they received information from God. But they weren't just laying in a bed and had a bad dream. Or even a good dream. That's not how God's word got transferred to his prophets. Are you hearing me? This has to do with what you've received for revelation. These men, these prophets, were caught up in a heavenly vision... And they heard God speak to them. They heard His Word. In the Old Testament, the word is sod. It means counsel. It's like a heavenly chamber where these men would be taken up into God's presence. Ezekiel said, whether in the Spirit, I don't know. It was so real. It was as if I were standing there in a body. And I heard this. Thus says the Lord. This is what happened to David. This is why these men had such great faith. They saw and they heard from God. And David here is allowed into a prophetic, divine counsel utterance where God is actually sharing something. Now, can you imagine this? David is allowed somewhere in this throne room of God and he hears God the Father, that's capital L-O-R-D, say to this other being who is God, what does he say to him? The Lord said to my Lord. That, that's my Lord right there, the one that I saw. He said to him, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now the right hand was a place of privilege, a place of honor. It was also a place of power. So in this heavenly scene, he hears God the Father speak to God the Son and tell him, sit here. 
So obviously David is making the connection that he is not the L-O-R-D. This is referring to nobody else but Jesus. Now by the way, if you don't think this is referring to Jesus, go back to Matthew 22. Jesus said this was referring to Jesus. So this is an easy one to figure out. So the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So what is happening here? God the Father is orchestrating the earth. He's orchestrating the affairs of man. And he has selected Jesus, obviously, to be the one who's going to rule. So he tells him, sit until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, by the way, you all know what a footstool is, right? It's not what sits in front of your TV that you kick your feet up on. It is in some way. But it wasn't quite like that. It was something that you positioned yourself to where you, you were on top of it. In other words, the footstool wasn't on top of you. You were on top of the footstool. And whatever was under you is your power. And so it's this idea of you sit here until I align things to where all you have to do is step in and the power is yours. He is seen here in verses 2 and 3 as the warrior king. Let me read this to you. The Lord, notice the capital L-O-R-D. So can I read it this way? God, the God the Father sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Now, can I get just a little technical here? Just, just a wee bit. These passages are interpreted in many different ways. So you either approach this in a futuristic view, saying that Jesus has not put everything under his feet yet, or you interpret this and say that Jesus has put everything under his feet and he's doing it in a spiritual way. In other words, he's reigning in the heavens, but he won't necessarily reign upon the earth in the sense of himself standing on the earth. So it's one of the two. He's either going to reign upon the earth or he's not. So people have different perspectives and they're good scholars. Now, obviously, I hold the position that Christ will reign upon the earth. And I do that for a number of reasons, but mainly because God's word says so. But I tell you all that to say this, and I'm, I'm getting just a little technical. When you study what's called hermeneutics or the method of interpretation, the number one issue that causes people to hold one view or the other is how the New Testament, how the New Testament uses Old Testament passages. Okay? So in other words, if you go to the New Testament and a writer in the New Testament quotes this verse... How does he use it? Now, if I went to Ephesians chapter 1 and I read a portion of this verse, it would seem like the Apostle Paul is saying that this verse is, is interpreted through Jesus' resurrection. I don't have time to turn there this morning. If I was teaching a class, I'd make you write a paper on it. But in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul quotes a section of this verse and he says, Jesus has triumphed through the resurrection. Okay, so here's what happens. New Testament scholars come back and take this and say, see, Psalm 110 is not talking about an earthly reign of Jesus. It's talking about the resurrection. 
And that's where it stops. And therefore, there's no earthly kingdom. But now hear me carefully. There is a difference between meaning and significance. Meaning and significance. In other words, when a New Testament writer quotes an Old Testament passage, is he interpreting it for meaning? In other words, is he saying this is exactly what that psalm meant? In some cases, they do. Jesus did. However, when the Apostle Paul quotes this verse, I do not believe he is reinterpreting Psalm 110. I think he is meaning the significance. And what he's saying is this. Since Jesus has said he's going to rule and reign, isn't it obvious he would have to be raised from the dead as step one to be able to reign? I mean, he couldn't have stayed in the grave forever. So he is giving the significance of Psalm 110 in Ephesians chapter 1 to simply say, this is proof that he's God and he is actually going to come back and rule and reign. Now, if I didn't tell you that bit of information, I would have felt like I did you injustice, but most of you may be sitting there going, why did he even share that? (laughs) Well, I promise you, if you go back and listen carefully and you dissect what I told you, it will solve four years of academic confusion in my life. (laughs) I was so confused. I would have to read people like D.A. Carson, G.K. Beale, who wrote a great book on Revelation, except he believes when a New Testament author quotes an Old Testament person, it reinterprets what the Old Testament meant, and now it means something different. And G.K. Beale is a scholar. But when someone actually showed me this and opened my eyes that a New Testament author either has one or two things in mind, he either gives it meaning or he gives it significance, my whole academic future, it's just like it took on a new shape. Now I could sit there and go, ah, now I clearly see. And therefore it helped me greatly. I hope it does you because some people struggle with that. But nevertheless, God presents him as the divine king. He will rule. So what does this mean today? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Do you understand what's happening in the world today with all the God haters, the Jesus haters, the nations of the world who are in rebellion and opposition to God? Do you understand what God is doing with them? He is breaking them setting them up to be under Jesus' feet. You say, well, it doesn't look like it very well. Just hold on. You haven't seen the end of the picture. You know what you do to a, to a calf before you slaughter him and eat a T-bone, don't you? What do you do to him? You, you feed him. You fatten him up. What does God say he's doing to the wicked nations of the world? If you don't know, read Joel chapter 3. He's fattening them up. He's waiting. And then he'll lower the boom. He is making the nations his footstool. There's a second picture we get of Jesus, and that is, and this is a great one, he is the eternal priest. Now, I'm not going to get too technical here. I've been as technical as I'm going to get this morning. But look in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, L-O-R-D, low caps, 
You are a priest forever. Can I just stop right there? You're a priest forever. Not only are you God, but you have been selected as priest forever. Now, how long did an, an Aaronic priest, A-A-R-O-N, that's Aaron, they came from the line of Aaron, how long did a priest last in the nation of Israel? He could start at, at what age? About what? 30? Right about it? And he had to retire at what age? 50. That means I get to retire next year, right? Uh, no. But they would work for about 25 years in the priesthood and they would step down at age 50. And th they weren't a priest anymore after that. Why? Well, because they had given their prime. Because that, it was a lot of hard work, by the way. He didn't just stand up and you know, read a scroll. They were butchers. They had to handle animals day in and day out. They slaughtered them. They cut the pieces in half. They threw them up on top. I mean, that is hard work, folks, if you've never been a butcher. But these, these men retired, and then they weren't a priest forever. Jesus is said to be a priest forever, but He's not after the order of Aaron, and He's not after the order of Levi. He is after the order of Melchizedek. Now, by the way, this is interesting, because they... Melchizedek is only mentioned one other time prior to this, and that was in Genesis chapter 14 when Abraham went to Sodom and Gomorrah and took the Marines with him, and they defeated all of the enemies that had been captured Lot. On his way back, he met this king prince, Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Salem means Jerusalem. He was, he was a king over the area of Jerusalem. He was not Jesus. Please, please. If you ever read that in a commentary, I know it's tempting to want to do that. That, is, that was not Jesus. But he appeared from nowhere and he was a king in the ancient world and he also had a dual role. He was also a priest. Now, by the way, Israel was not allowed to have a king priest. In other words, David could be king. He could not be priest. There was a man named Uzziah who thought he was a king priest and he went... And, you know, usurped his power. And he went in to offer a sacrifice. And what did God do? He gave him leprosy. His hands started withering and wilting away. So God did this as a, as a means of checks and balances. You all wonder where American politics came from? You all know why we have legislative, executive, and judicial powers in the United States? It came from the Scriptures, by the way. Uh, a man by the name of Locke, L-O-C-K-E, saw this divide in power and he said it is not good to give one branch all the power because if you do that, what ends up happening? Then that branch becomes dominant. And so through the Scripture, they saw in multiple places, not just one, where God divided up power where it was to have its own sector. And so this branch was balanced by this branch and this branch. Isn't it neat? You should read this man, John L-O-C-K-E. It's interesting on how he was the major influencer on the, the men who wrote the Constitution of the United States. John Locke, brilliant man. But in this place, Jesus is said to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, meaning he had no beginning. There's no recorded beginning of Melchizedek and no recorded end. Nothing is said. 
Now, if you want further on this, you can go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, 8, and 9, and the writer to Hebrews gives you two whole chapters on how Jesus becomes the forever priest. He did not have to offer a sacrifice for himself, as the Aaronic priest did, but he for one time made himself the offering. Priests in, in the Aaron's days had to offer a bull for their sin. Jesus did not have to do that. What did he do? He offered himself for the sin of others. He is a priest forever. Now, when you read Hebrews 7, 8, and 9, you'll discover that because he is a priest forever, he can save, the King James translates it, to the uttermost. What does that mean? Some people say, well, that means he can get the drunk down in the gutter. That's not what it means. He can. But what it means, he can save not just now and not until you sin the next time. He is going to be Savior through eternity, brother. Mark it down. People that struggle with their salvation don't understand the eternal priesthood of Jesus. Not only did He pay for your sin, past, present, and future, all throughout eternity, He will represent us to God. He is the great high priest. And this is why He, he is given so much laud in the book of Hebrews. Why would you go back to the order of the Old Testament sacrifice when you have a priest who has done it forever? That's the most ridiculous thing he's telling them. Don't do that. Jesus is a priest forever. And he is able to present us blameless before God. I'm going to come back to that one in just a minute. The third pro prophetic description is that Jesus is seen as the future judge and warrior. Uh, verses 5 through 7 read, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. Is this the day of His wrath, by the way? Uh, write down, go over there and write down from that 2 Thessalonians 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Joel chapter 3. Revelation chapter 5. We could have a good time here. And we will, by the way, on Sunday nights. Uh, starting August 21st at 5 o'clock right here. We're going to go through the book of Revelation verse by verse. I've never done that in a church. Uh, I've taught it in an academic level. I'm going to go through every verse, and I'm not going to confuse you, I hope, but we're going to talk about why people, why people believe that Jesus is not going to reign upon the earth, just spiritual, and why Revelation is future instead of in the past. You know, Some people believe that Revelation was in the past. Good men. Uh, good men. You all have heard of R.C. Sproul? You all ever heard of him? Ligonier Ministries? You all heard of D. James Kennedy? Used to preach down in Florida? They were preterists. Pre-terrorists. They believe Revelation happened in A.D. 70 when the Jerusalem temple was destroyed. They do not think that anything in Revelation was, pre was future from that. They have a reason for that. Why do they believe that? Uh, other people believe that Revelation means something different. What does it mean? Well, that's what we're going to study. And what does it mean to us? What should that do for us? I mean, church people need to understand things like this because it impacts the way we live. 
You know, are, are we going to be changed by it? Are we really overcomers? Who's the overcomer? What does that mean? If you live your Christian life faithless, in other words, you just go around and you do what you want to and sin and don't worry about what, I mean, is that going to impact your eternal future? Will there be a rain upon the earth? Will the new heaven and new earth be a literal new heaven and new earth where you and I live like we do now? Will that determine what you do throughout all eternity? I mean, you all don't think you're going to live on a glory cloud floating around playing a harp, do you? I hear people say that all the time. Or that we're going to be made into an angel. Oh, they're an angel now. No, you're not. That's a demotion. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, Paul says, Don't you saints know you'll judge angels? I mean, it's a demotion to tell somebody they're an angel. Because believers in Jesus will actually judge angels. Some of y'all don't believe me. I can tell by the way you're looking. Write down 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3 and check the preacher out. Paul told the, the carnal, fighting, fleshly Corinthians, straighten up. You can't solve matters in your own life taking this one to court and taking that one to court over this, that, and the other. Don't you know you're going to judge angels? That's the position of a believer in eternity. Yes, it makes a difference. And I'm not off here. I'm, I'm saying I got it right from verse 5. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. Filling them with corpses. That's kind of gloomy, isn't it? He's a warrior. He will shatter chiefs or heads over the wide earth. And then when he's finished mopping up the floor, by the way, it's kind of, kind of terrible. You all know what a, an ancient Near Eastern king would do. This is good for your lunch. I shouldn't tell you this. It's graphic. But when a king would defeat another king as a warrior military, folks, this is warfare. This is not 2022 where we're sensitive to people and it still happens in Russia and Ukraine. They would take the, the leader of the king out and they would set him on the ground and that ancient king would stand on top of his head. And he would put him under his heels and he would crush his head. And it was a way of signifying defeat and slaughter. By the way, do you know Paul said in... Romans chapter 16, that soon Satan would be under our heel and we would do what? We'd get to crush his head. Would you all help jump on him? I would. I'd give both feet and a bulldozer. <laughs> Jesus has said that he would, he would bruise Jesus' heel. He would bruise his heel because you know, he's crushing, but Jesus would crush his head. This is our Lord. He is, he is the warrior king. And when he comes back, he's going to rule and reign. Turn over. You won't get lost. Go to the last book in the Bible, Revelation 19. Let, let's get this picture of our, our Lord. Revelation chapter 19. This is just one little passage about the second coming of Jesus. And some people, you know, look at Revelation 19 and look at chapter 20. And chapter 20 is the great white throne judgment. That's where all unsaved people who have died will be resurrected and judged. But Revelation 19 is the second coming of Jesus. 
always like this. People say, well, how do you know that the earthly reign of Jesus comes before the great white throne? And I say this, it's simple. 19 comes before 20. <laughs> Notice how these two flow together. 1911, then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Now, by the way, the, the blood on the robe is not his own blood. Scratch down there and go back to Joel chapter 3. He, he is stamping the wine press. Getting the juice out of the, out of the grapes. And as he's stomping, what happens to his robe when it falls down and goes into the wine press? It gets stained on it. So he has now come down. John sees him in, in war. And he is, Psalm chapter 110 verse 7, he's laying out the corpses. He's stomping. He's, he's gaining victory. His name's the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He's a warrior. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe... And on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. By the way, if you wonder why Handel wrote the Messiah, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I mean, why did he do that? He knew what was coming. And that song was written as a way to make people wake up. This is Jesus, folks. Not the one in the manger. This is the one who's coming back on the war horse. Verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come and gather for the great supper of God. This is, this is graphic, isn't it? To eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of all men, both free and slaves, small and great. By the way, Psalm 110, 5, 6, and 7. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Ooh. Wow. I mean, this is a powerful pictorial image that Jesus wins. By the way, folks, you know, he, he is not the little sissy from Nazareth. I mean, I, I hate to have to say it like that, but our image of the Lord and his, his future coming is so skewed. I mean... We almost think he's weak and like 
unable to do anything. Please hear me for a minute. You read the text. He is sitting at God's right hand until the Father is preparing the nations to be made His footstool. And then He will come back and He will win. And He won't just win. He'll win big. He wins big. So what are the lessons we learn from a psalm like this? Well, first of all, I think we learned this lesson. We either submit to His kingship or we be crushed under His feet. We're either going to bow at His feet or we're going to be His footstool. And this is really our, our message today, isn't it? I mean, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But if you don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the same passage that, that mentions that God so loved the world and gave His only Son also says that those who didn't believe Him were condemned already. Why? Because they had not believed on the name of the Son of God. So our message to people today, first to ourselves, and then next to the people of the world is, we either accept Christ as Savior and as Lord and as the one who pays our sin debt and gives us the gift of eternal life, or we will be judged by Him. And that, that choice lies completely in the hands of people. We want to make that for people. We want to make that for our kids. We can't do that, can we? We can't make our kids believe. We can't make our kids love Jesus. But this is the option that's before us. We either submit to His kingship or we be crushed under His feet. The second lesson we learn is only Jesus can sufficiently present us blameless to God. No one else. He is the eternal priest who offered Himself and He takes our sin and gives us His what? Righteousness. He gives us His righteousness and therefore God the Father sees us as righteous as Jesus Himself. Now, you're in Revelation, right? You still there? Flip back to the book of Jude. It's right before Revelation. This is another great memory verse. You ever pay attention to the last verses in a book? They're fascinating. Notice what it says, Jude, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, in this present life, by the way, and, let me interpretively read here, He is also able to present you, what? Y'all say it like you mean it. Faultless, blameless, without sin. He is able to present you blameless where? Before the presence of His glory. Who is His glory? Y'all say it loud. Say it loud. God who? The Father. Thank you. 
Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless, faultless, guiltless, sinless before the presence of God the Father's glory. And you know how He's going to do it? Look at the next three words. With great joy. We're His bride. You, you all understand when a, when a groom comes for a, for a bride, He loves her. He's preparing a place for her. He's coming to get her. He's paid a dowry for her. He's left a guarantee for her that He's coming back. What, was the, what did He pay as the dowry? His life. He laid down His life for His church. He gave the down payment, which is the dowry, which is what? The Holy Spirit who lives within us. Ephesians chapter 1. It is the earnest, the earnest, old, old timers know what that meant. Earnest money was laying something down, guaranteeing I'm coming back to get it. That's the same word that's used in the New Testament. He, he is indwelling us with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee He's coming to get us. With great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, may He be, be given glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Wow! What a passage. What a passage. So what's the lesson? He's the only one that can sufficiently present us blameless, faultless before the presence of God the Father. And by the way, He can do it. And the third lesson we learn is simply this. We must either submit to Him now or be judged by Him later. I understand one and three are somehow connected, but they are slightly different. Do you, do you know, and I've given you this, this question and answer before, true or false, God the Father will judge all mankind. That's a loaded question, by the way. God the Father will be the judge of all mankind. True or false? Okay, I got one false. I, I won't make you raise your hands. Go to John chapter 5 real quick. John chapter 5. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I like to hear pages rustle, by the way. I'm going to start reading verse 26. John 5, 26. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the voice and come out, those who have done good, to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I need to go back to verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Who is the judge of all men? Now, I didn't say that. The text said that. Jesus said that. 
The Father judges no one. Now, just pause for a minute and let that sink in. You know, I had a co-worker that used to take God's name in vain all the time. And he would somehow use the name Jesus Christ in vain. Just, just terrible. And one time I shared with him, I said, you know, that name that you're using to curse is one day going to judge you. And I didn't even really know what I was talking about. I was, I was a younger man. Didn't, I couldn't have pointed to this verse if I had to. But I can now. <laughs> and he would be held accountable for that. So, so what, what should our response be to either submit to him now or be judged by him later? I'm having y'all turn all over the place, aren't I? Turn over to Philippians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, chapter 2. And I don't apologize for having you turn to different passages because we need to learn where they're at anyway. I'm going to start reading in verse 5, then I'll get down to my, my point. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 7, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men. Verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. You ready to read something carefully? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee... Can you all read that next word for me? Okay, why doesn't that say shall? Why does that say should? Where is this a quote from, by the way? You, are y'all, y'all know how to use your little reference tool there? You find the little number, you go over beside it. Where is it a reference to? Isaiah 52, Old Testament. There's a mixture of different verses here. You all see that? Isaiah 45, 23, that's, that's the one. Now, if you turn to Isaiah 45, 23, guess what's going to happen? Every knee shall bow. Why does Paul change it here and say every knee should bow? Is this meaning or is this significance? He's not reinterpreting Isaiah's shall to should. Paul is here applying this and saying, since every knee is going to bow sometime in the future, and because Jesus humbled himself and became a man and didn't grasp who was going to be the greatest between him and the Father, the Father highly exalted him, gave him a name above every name, and in light of his humility and his death on the cross, do you know what people should do when they hear that message? Every knee should willingly bow. They they should just go ahead and bow for who he is and what he's done for us. 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and do it to the glory of God the Father. Wow. That's what we should do. So, we either submit to Him now or be forced to bow the knee later. What an amazing God. What an amazing Bible. What an amazing eternal life that God gives to us. He's a good Savior. And I hope you know Him this morning. And if you don't, today's a great day to have eternal life. Father, thank You so much for Your goodness to us. You're so gracious. You're so loving. You have a plan. You know what You're doing. You know where You're going. You gave it to us in Your Word. For thousands of years, we could turn to these pages and see Your mind and Your heart and know who You are and what You're going to do. Father, sometimes we learn new things about You all the time. And it really humbles us. We thank You this morning that even thousands and thousands of years ago, You told us exactly what Jesus was going to do. And then 2,000 years ago, You recorded in Your Word all of the, the details about how this is going to play out. He will reign. But during this time... You're giving us an opportunity to share Your love and Your grace and Your blessings in the person and the work of Jesus Christ to people. You called us to be Your witnesses and to be faithful to do that. And I pray that we are. I pray that we're not ashamed of Him. pray that You'll give us courage to tell people who this Jesus really is and not have the fear of man drive our life, but instead have the love and the fear of God do that. Father, I pray for any person here this morning that may not know Christ as Savior. Maybe they're watching us online. Maybe they will come to watch us. But I pray that they'll understand what Jesus did on the cross when He paid our sin debt and offered Himself to You as a sacrifice for our sin. And then He gives that as a free gift. He gives eternal life to those who will believe that what He did on the cross, He did for them. And I also pray, Father, that we will understand exactly what He's going to do when He returns. So help us, first of all, to make sure that we know You, and second of all, to make sure that everyone we come into contact knows You as well. And we'll give You the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.